about 1947. No, I'm not that old. But about 1947, a uh, young lady from the east side of Rockford was introduced as a result of uh, a mutual friend to a young man from the west side of Rockford. She went to East High School. He went to West High School. That was kind of their way of acting outside the lines like young adults like to do. And uh, they fell in love. Now, as uh, it happened, both of them came from single-parent families. Now, that's a pretty common thing today, not all that common back then. But the thing that was strange was they had this interesting drive to build a traditional family. <laughs> that's, they wanted in their hearts what they hadn't had growing up. And so they got married and decided to have children. And they did after a year and had a son. And that son was handsome and strong and well-mannered. Yeah, it wasn't me. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> and incredibly impressive. That was my older brother. And so after about three years, they decided, hey, this parenting thing is easy. <laughs> Think we'll have another. <laughs> Anybody else ever make that mistake? All right. <laughs> but this time the child, while probably we looked a lot the same, had a very different personality and his brain operated differently. Uh, this child was on the move all the time. Okay, some people will say to me, I can't believe how much energy you have. And I will say, you should have met me when I was five. <laughs> okay, this is nothing. And uh, that's the way I was. And that's the life I lived and brought to my parents. I, no, this was not just a mild case of this. I uh, could not sleep at night. Not, I was up troubled and kept waking up. I didn't sleep. I didn't need sleep. <laughs> I just went all the time. 100% full out. That's the way I lived for the opening years of my life. Now, uh, there were probably some humorous moments, but by and large, this was a great hardship on my parents, so my mother was thrilled when I was finally old enough to start school and uh, so she had me yeah to get me out of the house and and because there, there was no place to send five-year-olds at that time besides school and uh, so I was tested to see if I could start kindergarten and the thing was when I tested for kindergarten I tested at a level like second or third grade so they said oh, wow maybe we should just start him at first grade and then after they got to know me a little bit more, they said, well, we'll try them in kindergarten. So I started kindergarten. I lasted two weeks in kindergarten. Okay? That's a statement of faith of the tenacity and determination of my kindergarten teacher. But two weeks, that was it. I was sent home and said, don't send the boy back. In fact, they said, he's smart enough, just start him next year in first grade. That, that might have been where the term pass the buck came from. They were going to pass it on to the first grade, grade teachers. All right. So, unfortunately, after another year of suffering, 
I did start the first grade, and I made it through first grade, barely, and second grade. The interesting thing is my mom actually saved report cards from first and second grade because they were curiously interesting. Okay? Back in those days, report cards looked something like this. You'd have like reading, A-A-A-A-A. Math skills, A-A-A-A-A. All A's all the way down until you got to the bottom. Then at the bottom, they had little boxes called effort and conduct. E-E. A's every six weeks, E's every six weeks. As I looked at them when my mom gave me these workers, I'm thinking, how could you possibly get an E in effort while you're getting A's in the subject? I guess you would have had to know me, all right? So that was, that was my experience. So by the third grade, they suggested, the school did, that my mom take me to the doctor. Now, I know now, in retrospect, that the doctor was code word for the psychiatrist, all right? And so I remember to this day, vividly, one of my vivid memories from childhood, sitting in the psychiatrist's office. And he says, in his psychiatrist sort of way, we have good news for you, Mrs. Petty. We know what's wrong with your son. She said, that's good. What's the therapy? There is none. Well, are there medicines? None available. Okay. What is it called? What I had was called Edison's trait originally. That was the one famous thing about it. It was named for Thomas Edison. And it, today we call it ADHD, uh, Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder. And uh, so she said, well, what would you suggest? And he said, well, I really only have one suggestion, and it's really stronger than a suggestion. You need to follow this advice. Don't ever try to send him back to school ever again. I was in the third grade. Okay? And he went on to say, I will provide the documentation that says this child is not fit for the educational system, <laughs> and so we're better off just keeping him at home. They didn't say, by the way, teach me at home. That was kind of before homeschooling. And they didn't, didn't say, we'll try to figure something else out. They just said, don't ever send him back to school again. Well, my mom didn't listen to them, and she did send me back to school. And I continued to get A's in most classes and E's in conduct and effort. Uh, the only time I didn't get an A in a class was when they started doing homework. Well, ADHD people don't do homework. We have a hard time remembering where our house is as we're headed home from school and where we're supposed to be next or what day it is once school's over. That's not going to happen. ADHD don't do homework. It's not going to happen. So if homework was needed for the grade, then my grade sagged a little bit. But still, all my subject grades were fine. It was just that effort and conduct thing. So, <laughs> um, life went on. I made it into junior high school. Now, thankfully, at the end of grade school, I discovered something which was a good place to put my energy, which did help a little bit, which was sports and music. And the thing was, I did those with all my heart and enjoyed burning off the energy there. It never just took the edge off. That was about it. But I did those things. Uh, but when I got 
into junior high school, by the time I was in the ninth grade, I only made it through two weeks of the ninth grade without being suspended. And those two weeks were because the coach of the football team first and then the coach of the basketball team promised to come and sit with me in every class so I could remain eligible to play football or basketball on whatever nights those happened. Okay, <laughs> So thanks to my football coaches, who, by the way, gave up after a couple of tries. So um, on into high school, and life went on. Uh, but as I explored the freedom that you get as an adolescent toward, toward the end, I started uh, doing something that wasn't to be mischievous, but just because I couldn't sleep at night. I mean, couldn't sleep at night. If I slept a couple of hours in three days, that was, that was like, someone was probably wrong with me to do that. I couldn't sleep. And so I would go out the window of my bedroom and just start wandering the neighborhood. And then in the morning, my parents didn't need an alarm clock because there comes the police officer with David home, and I'm home for the day, and then I went to school. That, that was my life when I was in high school, and that's what I did. I started playing in a rock and roll band and I was very interested in doing that and had fun doing it. Continued to play sports, but I ran into some problems with that. When I was a junior in high school, I was voted by the fellow players on my team as the most valuable player, and the coach kicked me off the team. And the coach kicked me off the team for no reason you would ever think of, which is this. I hurt too many other players in practice because I didn't know when to stop. I just went. Uh, back in the day when all the, I look at football today and I'm going like, whoa, all the things I was really good at are all personal fouls now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can't even tell you how many concussions I probably ha had doing that, but that was my life. So I gravitated more toward, toward music and I was making connections in music. I played at, uh, uh, for those of you who've been around a long time, on 7th Street there used to be a music store called Nielsen's House of Music, and I worked at Ralph Nielsen's House of Music uh, after school and on weekends, and, and I met there Rick Nielsen, who's guitarist for Cheap Trek, and he was older than me by three or four years, but uh, he told me when I was 17, uh, I know this band is looking for a bassist, if you can make it out to New York, they're going to be out there uh, doing auditions. If you can get a plane ticket, you can go out there. Well, that's all you had to say to me at, at that age, okay? So I, I get a plane ticket, and I leave home one night, and I go like I'm on my way to New York. And on my way to New York, by the way, that was in August 1969. Anybody know what was happening in New York in August of 19? Yeah, Woodstock. Yeah, that was when Woodstock. That's where they were going to be. They were all going to Woodstock, and on the way they were going to hold auditions at, at, at another place. So I never made it to Woodstock because, once again, my parents sent out feelers, and I got arrested and came, came home. Well, this time I had offended, for the last time, the juvenile justice system, and so they decided I needed to get placed in incarceration. So... Um, the judge, I appeared before the judge, and the judge said, um, we really think you need to go to an institution someplace, but we just don't know when or where. I found out later that this is actually true. 
none of the juvenile detention institutions would take me. They were afraid of the chaos I would cause if I resided at their place. Say, that's pretty sad, isn't it? <laughs> okay. So m the judge sends me home and tells my mom that they have to keep me on house arrest. This was before ankle bracelet. On house arrest while he decides where he can send me. So I'm sitting uh, outside the judge's office waiting for him to make this decision. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm really in trouble. <laughs> you, When you have ADHD, you rarely slow down long enough to realize you're really in trouble. But I did. And I thought, I seem to recall somebody talking about God and him helping them. So that was the first time I ever prayed. And I said, God, this is a prayer a lot of you have prayed. If you can get me out of this, Please do so. I didn't make any promises, by the way, because I knew I was not capable of keeping any promises. I just said, if you can get me out of this, that'd be great. That's not much of a prayer, is it? That was my, and by, no, there was nobody there to help me. I didn't have any tracts. I'd never read a Christian book. I'd never opened a Bible. That was the first time I'd ever prayed, but I prayed that prayer. Well, the judge said, we still can't find a place to send you, so back home on house arrest. So I went back home. In the meantime, my uncle, who was kind of like my hero because he was my baseball coach, and here's what made him my hero, okay? First of all, I could hit the ball a long way, but he chewed tobacco, spit, and scratched before he went up to the plate. And whenever I played, I did exactly the same thing. I looked like a clone, right? So, like, chew, spit, adjust your cup and get up to the plate. That was the thing, because my Uncle Pete did it. Well, something weird happened. Uncle Pete had grown up in a hyper-religious Pentecostal family and had rebelled and had said, I'll never, ever set foot in church again. But for some reason, when he was about 40, he became convicted of sin. He was your Sunday school teacher, wasn't he? You know this story? Okay. He... He got up one morning, got dressed up, walked out the door, walked down the street, walked in the open Bible church. They gave an altar call. He went forward and accepted Christ. And, and then when he went home, he told his wife what he did, and she did the same. That's Aunt Kitty. Okay? And so then that week, I'm on house arrest, locked in the bedroom. My mom is going, what are we going to do with this kid? And... Aunt Kitty shows up for coffee, tells my mom what happened, and then says, I heard on Sunday that our church that we go to now has a youth camp for adolescents, for children, and um, perhaps if you appeal to the judge, he'll let David go while he's waiting for placement. So my mom called the judge. The judge said, we still don't know where to send him, so yeah, send him to youth camp in the middle of nowhere in Iowa. And they did. And so I went to his youth camp. I'd never seen anything like it. And every other young person who was there was terrified of me. I mean, when I was uh, like a, in junior high school, I'd walk down the street and I'd look up the street and watch mothers calling their children out of the yard. I mean, I was notorious. Not because I was bad, just because I was mischievous, okay? 
If anything could be burnt down, I would burn it down. If anything could be painted on, I would paint on it. If anything could be climbed or jumped over, I would jump over it. I mean, if you want to know how a young person who has ADHD's brain works, I used to almost every day on the way home from school find the newest kid uh, in our school, like if there was a transfer, and I'd say to him, hey, you want to see me climb that tower? You can't climb there. You can't climb over there. How are you even going to get over the fence to get up there? I go, I can do it. I don't think so. How much you want to bet? Now, in those days, $5 was a lot of money. But I got rich because most weeks and oftentimes most days, I would climb that water tower. It's still there if you want to go see it. Okay. <laughs> and I would climb that water tower up the top, over the top, and down the other side, and then pick up my $5 when I got down then I would go home. Okay. Now, I didn't tell my mom this, and I forgot that she didn't know. So one time in a sermon, I mentioned that, and she went, Oh, my God! <laughs> so I don't do it anymore, okay? But that's what I did. Another thing was, I have a, I have a body full of scars from all my various activities, and my most famous scar is this one that I hide with my goatee. But right under here is a scar, and that's a bullet wound. Okay? You're going, like, how'd you get shot in the face? Right? Well, the way I got shot in the face was when I was, I think, 11, I was out in the yard, and I found a bullet. And I said to my friend, hey, you ever wonder what's inside of a bullet? We didn't have any guns at my house. And he goes, no. <laughs> and I said, I got to find out. So we took it in the garage. My dad had all kinds of tools. And I'm trying to take apart this bullet to see what's on the inside. Okay? And uh, you've heard about mentally ill people who do these kind of things. Yeah, that was me. And, and so I finally, after about an hour of trying to get it open, I couldn't get it open, I put it in my dad's vice. You're seeing this coming, aren't you? All right? And I'm still working on it with wrenches in the vice. My mom, she should have known better, but she was probably in the house going like, Gee, it's awfully quiet. I wonder what David's up to. Anyhow, so then I'm going, wonder what would happen if I hit it with a hammer. <laughs> so I hit it with a hammer, and it exploded, and I had a bullet lodged in my jawbone. And when we went to the doctor to get it pulled out, the, Mr. Sanders, uh, Dr. Sanders, that was his name, right? Wasn't that our family doctor? Dr. Sanders said to my mom, Lois, I don't think you're going to survive this boy. And they pulled the bullet out, and that's how I got the bullet hole there. It's a miracle I'm even alive after that kind of craziness. Well, so my aunt makes a suggestion. The judge agrees, and I go to the camp. When I get to the camp, I find out they have evangelistic meetings every night. I didn't know this was a church thing. I just thought I was going out in the wilderness someplace. And uh, I'm sitting in the meeting the first night. And as far as I recall, that's the first time I'd ever heard the gospel, meaning the simple explanation that Jesus died for my sins in my place so that I could be forgiven, have a clean... In fact, I think the guy mentioned clean slate. And I'm sitting there thinking, I could use one of those. Okay? So I'm thinking, if tomorrow night he makes the same invitation, I'm going forward. 
So the next night, uh, Harvey Lapstein, that was the name of the guy who was preaching, he, he gets to a point where his throat becomes parched, and so he reaches for a glass of water and takes a drink. I think he's done preaching. I go forward, and the whole service. And uh, everybody is looking, going, did you see who just went forward? And that was the night I accepted Christ, August 13th, 1969. And that was the change point. That was the turning point. Well, accepting Christ did not cure me of my ADHD. In fact, somewhere along when I was 40, I realized that I don't even think I'm going to get healed of ADHD when I get to heaven. I have a feeling God made me this way. Okay, now you may doubt otherwise. We'll find out when we get to heaven, okay? And it's not a bad thing, and that was a good revelation for me to have, okay? God likes different. It's people in our world who have trouble with different. <laughs> and so... Um, I kind of shut down, finished high school, and my dad started thinking, what's this boy going to do to make a living? Now, you need to know my dad was a proud tool and die maker. So proud that he thought everybody ought to be a tool and die maker, particularly his son. So uh, both of my brothers became tool and die makers, and I remember at the age of maybe 10 or 11, my dad had me out in the garage. That's probably where I learned how to use the vise to hit the bullet with the hammer. And he was showing me how to, how to operate a um, micrometer and a depth gauge. And, and then after about an hour of frustration, he went marching in the house. I was behind him, and I heard him say under his breath to my mother, the boy's going to be homeless. <laughs> but then as the senior year went on, my dad had this revelation. He had read someplace that the new cutting edge for employment was data processing. So he was going to send me to school to be a computer programmer. That was his plan. And he did, and I did well. And uh, he got me a job in the summer working at the factory where he worked. And um, I did okay at it, I think. But I hated it. I mean... I hated it. In fact, I thought a couple of times, if I have to do this the rest of my life, I'm going to kill myself. I hate this job. Okay? Now, Russ took my place, and he loved it. <laughs> okay? And we were both young. Had hair. Yep. And uh, uh, so then um, I decided after one year of school, I'm switching schools and majors. And because I had started going to church, I said, I think I'm going to become a pastor. Thanks for not laughing. Everybody who I told back in those days had a big chuckle about that. So I go away to uh, Bible college, and I'm doing well in Bible college. And long about the third year, I'm in a class called Pastoral Theology. And the pastor says, or the teacher says, professor, okay, imagine you could build any kind of church want what kind of church would you build write a paper on it okay so I remember sitting later in the student lounge and I thought the thought came into my mind there ought to be a church for people like me because even though I started going to church 
Do you know how many times an entire congregation of people just turned around and stared at me? That happened every Sunday. Because I was fidgeting. Or I was making noise. Or I spoke at the wrong time. Or something like that. <laughs> and it was not a comfortable situation. I knew I needed to be there. But I didn't really, I wasn't all that fond of church either. Okay? Because <laughs> it made me feel uncomfortable. But I began to think and dream about a church. And I wrote the paper called A Church for Misfits. For people, not just that welcomes people who aren't ordinary, but who builds the church around the needs of people who are ostracized by society and are not normal. Normal's an interesting idea, isn't it? I remember one time at the cutting edge of, of aptitude tests, ha getting one at school and then bringing it home to my mom and going, Mom, who's Norm? And why aren't I Norm? <laughs> yeah. Uh, misfits. Like, if I could explain to you what growing up with ADHD was like, it was like being the round peg being driven into a square hole. You never fit anywhere. Even in the areas where you excelled in talent, okay, you were just a weirdo and an oddball, and you didn't really fit. And people thought you were hilarious to start with, but they quickly got sick of you. Okay? That's what it was like in my growing up years. So then, I will tell the rest of my story and how I started a church for misfits. But first, I'd like to get to our text for the day because I'm running out of time. Have you ever read an account in the Bible and said, hey, that's my story? We've been having that experience on Wednesday night, for those of you who have come, in The Chosen. And we asked a couple weeks ago, who's the biblical character in the story that you can best relate to? And there are a lot of, like, quirky people among the disciples of Jesus. And most all of us had somebody that we go, like, yeah, that's, that's like me. Well, when I read this story the first time in the Bible, on my own when I was reading the Bible, I thought, wow, that could be today. That could be me. The text actually starts way back at Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. And in this passage something happens that you're very familiar with. You've heard this story many times, but you probably have not a clue why it happened because, like many things, it's disconnected from chapter 5. That day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Now, he's talking about the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Strange thing. If you look at a map when you get home or in your Bible, if you've got one, of uh, Israel at the time of Christ, you'll see the Sea of Galilee up north where four of the disciples were fishermen. And Israel's on one side of the lake and Gentile countries on the other side of the lake. Do you know that even among the four fishermen who lived in Galilee, it is a very good chance that by the time they reached adulthood, they had never been to the other side of the lake. Why? 
Gentiles live over there. Okay? Just like the people who walked across the other side of the street when they saw me coming. Okay? Oddballs, weirdos are over there. But what does Jesus say? Hey, <laughs> let's go over to the other side. You ever met somebody who's a bigot? Usually means whatever area they're bigoted in, they probably never met one of those people, right? Because that would screw everything up, particularly if they just, just had the misfortune of meeting one who was pretty nice. And the disciples are just about to meet the kind of people who live on the other side of the lake. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. And a furious squall came up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? So he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Now the interesting thing is, <laughs> this not only is a demonstration of Jesus' divinity, because we can't speak to the natural elements and have them obey, but he can. But what he said was a picture of about what he was going to say to a man when he got on the other side. Be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why were you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. From this story and from my story, four important lessons to be learned. First, a message for the church. We are responsible to take Jesus to the strange people on the other side of the lake and one of them standing in front of you. Now, the church didn't do it on purpose, but if I hadn't gone to a church camp, where would I be today? I don't know. Most people, by the way, who are stricken with ADHD as badly as me, usually end up on death row or dead from their behavior. So they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. We're about to get to the part that reminds you of me. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones or shoot himself in the face. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. 
For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again to send them out of the area. A message for disciples, for followers of Christ, for people who want to make a difference for God. If you're one of those, here's understanding you need. You can't fix people. I was unfixable. We are simply conduits of God's grace. God's grace changes hearts and lives. Nothing else does. Reformed behavior doesn't do it. Classes that tell people what to stop to do doesn't do it. Getting dressed up doesn't do it. Only God's grace. We are conduits of God's grace, not controllers of human behavior. And in fact, when you disdain the behavior of oddballs like me, you're just failing to notice the, own, the speck in your own eye. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they had come to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. That's a strange reaction, isn't it? A message for the world. To this end, we must disregard our own concerns and step outside of our comfort zone. <laughs> Unless you're willing to get close to people you just as soon rather not get close to, you're not going to become an instrument of change in our world. You got to get over it. Otherwise, you have to do what the citizens of this region did. Just ask Jesus to leave. Well, as Jesus was getting into the boat to leave, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him, begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, ten Greek Gentile cities on the other side of the lake, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. A message for us. 
in doing so, that he is in, in inviting into our space people that are different. We will multiply our efforts and empower even more effective evangelists with meaningful stories to tell. God gave me a story to tell. So I decided when I was an associate pastor in Washington, I finished Bible college in Des Moines, Iowa. I went to do an internship in Dayton, Ohio. I then went to be an associate on the staff of a large church in Tacoma, Washington. And it was while there I became convinced that when I'm finished with my assignment here, I'll go start that church for misfits. Well, after about three years, the senior pastor resigned. And in the de denomination I was in, if the senior pastor resigned in a large church, all of the associates also had to resign. Just the way it worked. Then, if the new pastor came and he wanted to invite you to come back and be on his staff, you could do that, but generally that didn't happen. Now, because we were the largest church in the denomination, um, the people who served on that staff were in great demand by other churches who needed associate pastors. So within about six weeks, the senior pastor left. Nine other associate pastors left. And I was the only one left because when I was leaving, I was going to start my church for misfits, and I didn't even know where to start. I had submitted an a, uh, idea for this to my denomination. And I was waiting to hear from them as the pastors were going. By the way, for those of you who think, well, he's just a pastor of a little church. So when I was 24 years old, I was the only pastor of a church with 5,000 members and five worship services every weekend. <laughs> God does strange things, right? Oh, and in case you're wondering, when I came back here, I spoke several times to eight or ten people. And if you want to know which makes you more nervous, it's always the eight or ten. Because you don't even notice the people in a big crowd. And the people in the little crowd, they're all looking at you, and you wonder what they're thinking, right? But um, big church. But I wasn't hearing back from the divisional superintendent, and so I went to a divisional conference. And I bet, you know, I bet I'll see him there. I'll, I'll talk to him. So uh, I'm at a meet and greet. You know, the little things where you hold the cup and you're... And I have ADHD, so it's very uncomfortable for me, and I'm looking around. There he is. I'll go talk to him. I go buzzing across. He's gone. I mean, he's a big old guy. How fast can he move? But he's gone. And then I, so I'm sitting there. I look up. He's over there. I go over there. I get over there. He's gone again. <laughs> if you're getting the idea that he's hiding from me, he is. And the thing is, so I look up, and he's getting into a limo uh, with a driver, in on the right at the sidewalk as I'm looking out the door. I go flying out I, before the uh, limousine driver can shut the door. I jump in and sit next to him. I mean, I have ADHD, right? We've established that. And so I'm sitting next to him going, uh, you know who I am, Dr. Stewart? And he goes, yeah, I think I do. And, and I go, you know, I sent a prospectus to you, and I haven't heard back from you. Have you had a chance to consider it at one of your board meetings. 
in a moment of honesty, which appeared to be really hard for him, which seems kind of sad since he's a divisional superintendent of a large denomination church, he says, well, you know, we decided it wasn't a good idea. How so? He said, and I quote him exactly, well, the consensus was, why would we even want to start a church for people like that? So I'm going, I get out of the car, and I go, I guess I'm going to have to do it on my own. So I resigned from the church, packed up, moved back to Rockford because my father-in-law owned a screw machine shop, and I knew I could get a job, even though I didn't have any talent in that area, uh, because he was my father-in-law, he didn't want to see his daughter and, and grandchildren starve to death. And so <laughs> I got a job working at a screw machine shop. And then on the weekends, uh, I was using my connections, and I was preaching all over the place. And one of the places uh, I happened to preach was, was my father-in-law was a high school friend of Dale's. And they were talking, and Dale said, our church is without a pastor, and our interim pastor is not going to be here this Sunday. We could use somebody to fill in, and that's how I came here. Okay? And so I came, and then after a couple of weeks, I think they liked my energy, and they hadn't really imagined what it would be like to have a younger pastor, but they were seeing like, wow, this guy's been around and done a few things. And so they were getting excited. So they said, we'd like to vote on you to come and be pastor. And I said to them, you people are way too normal. I'm going to start a church from scratch. That's what I was sure I was going to have to do. Uh, and it's not going to be for people like you. So no, that's not going to work. But then I came back and preached again, and they asked again. So I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give a little presentation to tell you the church I'm going to start, thinking I just exaggerated it all, and they would be scared to death and ask me to go away so that I wouldn't have that problem. But they didn't do that. They actually said, well, we could start this church with you. We have a building, not finished, but a building, and uh, we have a few people, so we could start it here. So I said, okay, vote on me. I'm thinking, there's no way they're voting me in. Well, as I understand, 13 people, voting members, voted on this. And I was voted in 7 to 6. And the chairman of the board called to inform me I was voted 7 to 6. And that the six people were leaving the church. <laughs> A week later, two more people left the church. And I was about down to scratch. But Dale and Dorothy hung in there with me. I got a few other people who have since gone home to be with the Lord. And that's pretty exciting news. And that's, that's how it's how it started but God knew and that's where we started it all now bottom line what are the short lessons from the story because listen if you just find my story interesting and good dinner conversation <laughs> it's not worth much here are the things you need to take out of my story Jesus sees you and knows your struggle even if your struggle is weird and not like anybody else. He knows you and loves you. He doesn't love you in your finished state when he gets you all cleaned up. He loves you just as you are, right where you are. He knows. He understands. You may feel you have to hide certain things from other people. You don't need to hide anything from him. Second, he is not at all overwhelmed by your issues. Okay. 
the world can be, he is not. He's also not concerned with what other people think. Okay? There may be other people who are saying, like, good, we're glad he's dressed in his right mind. Now get him out of here. <laughs> right? We don't want to deal with him. But that's not how God thinks. And then finally, his plan for your life is much bigger and far-reaching than you could ever possibly imagine. You know, when I, uh, when I came to convinced that that was true, after I got saved, I quit playing music altogether. I, I paid for my first two years of Bible college by selling all my amplifiers and guitars. Okay? So something good came out of rock and roll. And, uh, and the thing was, uh, I'm at Bible college, and I'm in the, like, first week I was there, and I'm out in the uh, uh, parking lot shooting hoops with some of the other students. And a guy pulls up in a car and throws open the door, and he goes, hey, I heard you play. I go, yeah, play basketball. No, no, play music. I'm going like, yeah, but the kind of music I play doesn't really fit around here, and I kind of quit doing that. And he goes, we're looking for a bass player for a Christian rock band. I'm going like, now you got to understand, this is back when we only sang hymns. I'm going like, uh-huh, what was that? He goes, yeah, Christ, Christian rock band. Uh, I'm going like, yeah, uh, okay, I got nothing to do Thursday night. I'll come and, and hang out with you and play. I'm thinking I'm going to participate with a garage band, okay? Because, and I had nothing to do, you know, and I was like, I hope they serve food because I really was hungry most of the time back in those days. But I go over, and uh, I get to the location, and they're rehearsing, or actually rehearsing at a church, and this band sounds pretty tight and nice, and they're playing music like I've never heard before, and I'm having fun with it. And when I get done, I'm going like, well, that was fun. What are we going to do tomorrow? And I put my bass away, and, and the lady who was the head of the group, um, who had been a renowned artist herself, and I didn't know that because she was a Christian, I didn't really know any Christians, said... We're going on tour starting next week, and it's summer, and so I, I'm listening, and, and she goes, let me pass out the sheet of the, the tour schedule. Now, the thing you need to know was, when I came to Christ and gave up rock and roll music, I was with a band that was scheduled to play someplace that we had a dream of playing, because when you played there, um, union people set up your instruments and tuned them and all that stuff, and it was a huge, it was but today has been reformed into McCormick's place. Okay. Um, what's the name of something theater? Anyhow. Yeah, Erie Crown Theater. Thank you. And so that was, in my mind, that, was, that would have been arriving. Okay, we were opening for somebody else. And, and so in my mind, that's what I thought. But I thought that's what I gave up for Jesus. Okay. It's okay. So she's passing out the sheets. I look down. First place we're playing, Erie Crown Theater. And I just began to weep. And I thought, God knew that. I mean, what's the difference? Nobody probably even remembers that we played there. But to me, it said, you know, God's been with you all along. He knows what's going on. And he has a plan for your life. Stop trying to figure it out. And just sit back and enjoy the ride. And I tell you, since then, it's been a pretty incredible 
Well, as best I can tell it in 45 minutes, that's my story. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful you know that, but I'll say it again. So grateful that you saved me from a life of destruction. Today, it's hard to believe I'm 70 years old. How could it be? On the track I was on, I would have been lucky if I lived to 17, let alone 70. And yet, all along the way, you've been there for me. Thank you for what you've done. My heart is today full of gratitude. Let's stand.